The first part of this century saw VCs backing promising new life sciences companies with impactful products and services, establishing genomics as a commodity, revolutionizing drug discovery, and developing advanced cell and gene therapies. Everything we've talked about in this series, really. It's been driven, in part, by advances in technology and the people and capital networks needed to build successful companies. But then, 2020 arrived, and with it, COVID. This shifted the world's focus onto one thing, and one thing only, saving lives by finding a solution to the pandemic in the form of vaccines, testing, and drugs. This created an unprecedented new demand for COVID solutions that skewed investment priorities. So what effect did the COVID pandemic have on people looking to invest? And did the enhanced focus on life sciences deliver a lasting benefit for companies not on the COVID frontline? To find out, join me, Stuart Lowe, as we plug into our final episode of the first series of Invent Life Sciences, a podcast brought to you by technology and product development company, TTP. Today we ask, how did the pandemic change the investment landscape in life sciences? There's always been a strong link between financial returns and societal benefits in the life sciences. While the COVID pandemic was a huge disruptor in the industry, not least to working practices, it also created opportunities for companies working in medical equipment, testing and vaccines. The life sciences saw one of the most significant changes to its landscape over this period. The pandemic actually led to a record high in venture capital investment in Biopharma in 2020, some 20 billion pounds. Here was something of a sure thing, a worldwide virus in need of a solution with life sciences holding the answer, and the momentum built up in 2020 has continued in the following years. With this amount of money available to companies who were already focusing on issues related to COVID, many others altered their output to specialise in COVID-related fields. As we heard with diagnostics last week, these sectors needed to scale, and scale fast. So it made sense for many to shift their output in turn. But the major flux in the industry that this caused Disrupted investment trends that have been playing out over the previous years were still living through the fallout. Were life sciences companies able to effectively reposition their business plans in the face of COVID? What was it like to set up and run a company during this tumultuous period? And what have we learned that prepares us to face the next global disruptor? To help me answer these questions, I knew I needed to get in touch with some people with a broad view of the life sciences to give a picture of the investment landscape before, during and after COVID. So I got in touch with Gonzalo Garcia, a biotech investor, company builder and partner at Sincona Limited. Sincona are a company who found, build and fund early stage companies to turn science into transformational treatments, focusing on areas of high unmet clinical need. Prior to joining Sincona, Gonzalo completed a PhD in protein biophysics from the University of Cambridge, an EMBO short-term fellowship in cell biology at Harvard Medical School, and became a project leader at Boston Consulting Group. His work at Syncona includes his role as chief of staff and board observer at Resolution Therapeutics, something we spoke about at length for this episode. I started off by asking him about what he saw as a good funding ecosystem for the life sciences in the years before the pandemic, before exploring how things like risk appetite have changed in the wake of it. 
you've been working as a partner at um, at Syncona pre-pandemic. Tell, tell me a bit about uh, what you're what you're doing day to day and what you're looking for in kind of investment in the life sciences. Sure. So I've been at Syncona now for just over two years, and um, I'd say when it comes to investing, there's a, you look for a lot of things, but I always sort of think three things up front. Um, the first one is good science. So if I look for new opportunities, the first thing I'm asking is. Uh, is the science solid? Is it credible? Uh, is it well thought out? Uh, you know, is it just people looking to publish or quickly tell a story versus someone really seeking truth? Uh, and you, you can get a sense of that quite quickly, I find. Second one is uh, what stage of development is. And that's that's a very specific Sincona thing. We, we like early stage investments where we can have an influence, we can shape it. And so ideally we want advanced science, but early in the company creation journey, you know, last thing what we don't like to see is, you know, good science that hasn't gone down the wrong path. Because mm-hmm. uh, I think it then gets very difficult to correct. And then thirdly, people. You want people you can trust, you can look in the eye and believe what they're telling you, and you believe you can trust them to build a company. And then obviously there are a bunch of other things, IP, for example, competition, all the other things. So I spend a lot of my time at Syncona on basically those three topics, looking for them, assessing them, and then building them into the companies when we create them. I'm just um, just kind of going back to the to the funding side of things. I mean, what does a healthy funding ecosystem look like for for cell therapy how many funders are there am- amount of capital number of number of companies per year what does good look like to, to you <laughs> well it's a tough question i mean cell therapy companies i mean you're probably seeing 10 in the tens a year being kind of popping up that are kind of making making big news making headlines traditionally it's been very centered on oncology because uh, that's where they first saw promise and i think a healthy environment also looks to apply them elsewhere. I think you are seeing that, and that, that was you know that's been in place now for a few years. We've seen them being sent to regenerative medicine, to autoimmune, to you know several contexts. We've got a, f- a few companies looking to do that that sort of thing. And then also, I think the ecosystem around it. So it's great to fund these com- the cell therapy therapeutics companies, which is what what our sweet spot at Sincona. But you also need all the manufacturing capability around that. You need all the supply chains to create things like plasmids, vectors, all that stuff. Uh, then the yeah the manufacturing itself, uh, you know, ex- expertise and cons- regulatory uh, consultancy around regulatory support, um, clinical expertise as well. You need to educate hospitals in administering these these therapies. There's a whole ecosystem around that that also needs to be funded. And you do see a bit of that. That you do see you know things like manufacturing. Uh, there's a bit of a not necessarily I wouldn't say it's necessarily a bottleneck, but there's there's a potentially a gap there where there's not necessarily enough capacity for the amount of companies coming through, uh, certainly in Europe and the UK. So are these established companies trying to move into manufacturing, or are you getting kind of dedicated manufacturing startups? It's uh, it's a different proposition, isn't it? Yeah, you're getting a few. So some startups who have a new device or you know a new a new solution to a long-standing problem. You've got these big titans in the industry. Uh, that that have been you know, used by many companies out there. You know, things companies like Multeni come to mind, um, and so you've got startups around who have new ideas, new solutions for for that. You then have companies who are traditional um, uh, contract research organisations and contract manufacturing organisations who are now looking to move more and more into cell therapy. You know, companies like Lonza, for example, come to mind there. And then what we what we've seen a bit of in the last year and a half, just quite interesting, is companies that traditionally been focused preclinically in making research cell lines, trying to get into the clinical space, trying to make clinical manufacturing. Okay, okay. It's, it's, it's a very rational thing to do. They've got the, they can make the cells, they can engineer them, they can do all kinds of things to the cells. And so taking that into GMP, you know, clinical setting actually is, is an interesting approach. And we've seen a few companies trying to do that. 
uh, again with you know, several flavors of that, different innovations around that. Is there, is there a change in kind of risk appetite? Um, because obviously the, the manufacturing plays are a bit riskier, but they need to be they need to be funded, right? Once they necessarily they're riskier, I think they're they're very different risk profile. So, kind of one of the axes I, th- I always think of in investing in, in life sciences is sort of therapeutics versus everything else. So therapeutics are big returns, but very long timelines and very very binary risk. You, you're you're talking sort of very very high numbers or near zero, basically off the back of clinical trials, off the back of scientific bets often. Um, and that's not for everyone, right? So that's a very particular risk profile. Any long horizons, it's it's tricky. Uh, and then everything else, and in that bucket includes uh, manufacturing, where you've got usually service-type businesses. Often, they're, if they're expansions of existing businesses, often they've got some funding to get started, uh, internal funding, sometimes not. It's a very different risk profile. You've got to build a bit of a footprint initially, a bit of capability, and then you're you're providing services. So you're relying on sales, and then eventually maybe you'll get a cut of the, the products you help with. Um, so you've got to sort of the way I think about it is it's much less binary. You've got to, but you've got to constantly be fighting a battle. It's not the case that suddenly it works and you're done. You've got to keep fighting, keep growing, keep scaling, lowering your costs and so on. Um, but it's less. It, there's a much more sort of gradual trajectory there, and many investors like that. That's that's much 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 more preferable, I'd say, to many investors. For sure, an effective ecosystem for starting up life sciences companies relies on a few key ingredients including strong science and people, of course. But I was intrigued by this idea of funders' risk appetite that Gonzalo mentioned. We heard about this idea before in the series. From Dan Strange, in the first of our Cell and Gene two-parter, those fears of the risk and expense of one-time cures that he mentioned are, of course, shared by investors. But what else is important? What else should people be looking for when starting up a life sciences business? I wanted to speak to somebody who helps grow early stage companies, but also someone who had done it during COVID because this totally altered the investment landscape and the way in which business got done. So I called up Jason Mellard, the CEO and co-founder of Start Codon. After a PhD in medicine from the University of Cambridge, Jason worked in various directing roles for several life sciences companies, such as Cambridge Epigenetics, before founding Start Codon in late 2018. Start Codon are a venture capital investor and venture builder who support aspiring entrepreneurs in development and commercialization of their business. They target disruptive innovations in the life sciences space and have already seen dozens of successful startups come through their program to bring their ideas to the world. I asked Jason about his experience of setting up Start Codon, what the early years were like and what happened when the pandemic hit. So, uh, how how long have you been with uh, with Start Codon? So, my co-founder Dan and I set up Start Codon in 2018, and we raised our first capital for the Topco in summer of 2019. So, since 2018, this has been a thought, and even before then, the concept of some kind of venture builder accelerator in the Cambridge area had been discussed by a couple of the different parties who invested in us. But Dan and I decided to quit our day jobs and devote ourselves fully to setting up Start Codon in 2018. Great. And so you've raised some capital in, in 2019. What, what are you doing at the end of 2019? What does, what does the, the picture look like there? So the picture looked like um, in 2019, we raised a bit of capital to help pay salaries um, for a brief while, but to help cover salaries and overhead costs because we needed to raise a fund. 
So really, mm-hmm. end of 2019 looked like a mad scramble of really trying to get our cornerstone um, LP investors across the line so that we could start making our first investments and really get things started. And then you come into uh, 2020 and you're, you're starting to talk to, to a few potential um, founders, right? Yes. So we were already in parallel. It's that game that a lot of VCs play. It's like you've got to warm people up before the funds are in the bank to make the investment. So it's a mixture of trying to keep them warm and doing diligence, but not stringing anybody along. And it's a fine balance you have to strike. But we were able to find our first four investments and line them up. And in many ways, try to support them before we gave them the capital, because we do offer more than the funding itself. So we said, let's line them up to be our first cohort and welcome them in early 2020. And then in, in, in March, um, everybody gets uh, told to stay home. That must be quite a shock uh, for, well, it was a shock for everybody. But actually, that, that sort of thing you're trying to build up with, the, with the, that family style community. How, how, how were you feeling then? Well, shock is an understatement. It certainly hit us. <laughs> and in particular, I remember in the early days, we thought, oh, maybe this will just be a couple of weeks. It'll all go back to normal soon. It's just three weeks. And, That's fine. Yeah, just a few weeks. It's fine. We're like, oh, you know, flexible working. We can Zoom. It's fine. Yeah, so that was quite a disruptive thing to happen to us. It ultimately was for the benefit of the program. So we went from being together for three weeks to everybody having to work remotely, keeping in touch by Zoom, keeping in touch by WhatsApp, whatever means necessary, but also knowing that we had to still close the remainder of the fund and still continue to invest because part of our investment model is we have to continuously deploy capital. We don't just take fees from the LP fund itself. We take a contribution for every investment that we make and that helps cover our overhead costs so we didn't have the luxury of really kind of hunkering down and waiting through the storm we had to continuously deploy capital throughout the pandemic did the sorts of companies you were talking to change uh, over that time well you know from day one we always wanted to have a pretty broad remit when it came to verticals so therapeutics diagnostics digital health and med tech We've got great pharma partners in Roche Genentech and Novartis who have a very broad interest, as well as some of the other stakeholders we have on like Cambridge Innovation Capital and Babraham Research Campus and Meltwin, etc. So we had a very broad remit. We also were interested in looking outside of the Cambridge area and the Golden Triangle. We felt that there was a lot of opportunity across the UK, but at the early days, we did get some kind of hesitancy, I would say, for people and opportunities located outside of Cambridge that couldn't commute in and also couldn't commit to six months of a physical location with us in the Milner. So that in some ways naturally was limiting the scope of what we were able to do. When we were virtual, it didn't matter if you were a five-minute walk from my house or a five-hour drive away. We were all on Zoom. Suddenly, people said, okay, well, it looks like Star Codon can provide virtual support. I'm very interested in their finance. I'm very mm-hmm. interested in their model. So it opened up deal flow and capabilities for us. So just coming back to the the, the type of companies, you, you said you had quite a few verticals that you were looking at. Can, can you paint a, a picture of some of the investment trends that were going on at that time broadly? Were there some areas which are sort of fashionable, some areas which are kind of out of favor? There must have been some heuristics that people tended to use at that time. Definitely. I think many things to consider. Now, the pandemic itself obviously was disruptive globally. I think for the life science investment community, some trends were accelerated and some things were really, truly 
novel. The reason I say that is that the diagnostics industry historically in the UK hasn't been nearly as robust as it is in other territories, particularly the States. And because of this great increased need for COVID diagnostics and this idea of detection, suddenly the winds shifted away from therapeutics being the golden child and oncology being the golden child to people starting to think more about diagnostics and early detection, mm -hmm. which is already the direction of travel, but also opening up the concept of maybe we should be considering anti-infectives, antimicrobials again. So diagnostics, and antimicrobials as kind of the ugly stepchildren of the venture community and everyone's focused on oncology therapeutics, it broadened out. It made us feel all a bit more human, um, the idea of our mortality right in our hands from the pandemic. And I think that got investors who were not traditional life science investors really focusing on the space more. As Jason says, the pandemic truly made diagnostics the golden child of the life sciences. Lateral flow testing, PCR, as we heard last week, these are now common parlance amongst most people in the world. The pandemic broadened horizons for many investors, whether it was moving towards testing or virtual appointments. StartCodon's rapid shift to virtual meetings is another example of that same idea. But that's all from the investor perspective. What did the pandemic mean for those on the other side, the companies receiving investment? How did people in the early stages of growing their ideas manage such drastic changes to how everything was run? I went back to Gonzalo to find out. As the Chief of Staff at Resolution Therapeutics, a company which started early on in the pandemic, he had some fascinating stories of what it was like to build something from the ground up in those tumultuous days. Can you tell us about kind of how, how you got involved with uh, Resolution? What What's the background to that story and then kind of what happened? Absolutely. So Resolution, it's a, there's a long history there that um, the University of Edinburgh and St. Kona have been collaborating for a few years now on on this idea of using macrophages um, to ameliorate inflammatory organ damage. So going back to the idea of using cell therapy outside oncology is one of the ideas that, that came up from discussions between St. Kona and the university. Uh, and, you know, after a couple of years uh, collaborating and, and sort of moving further the science forward, uh, we took the decision to found the company around it. And that was around the time that I, I joined Sincona. Uh, so I arrived sort of just as as that transition happened to decide we're going to found, build a company. Okay. So I arrived in time for that. And then so then picked that up, you know, helped get the investment over the line and then built the company. Now, we had the misfortune that the decision to found the company was taken, I remember very clearly, uh, in early March 2020. <laughs> that, yeah. that was the meeting where it got decided. So obviously, literally two weeks later, we're all in lockdown uh, and thinking, what do we do now? So that that was very stressful for a while because obviously, you know, it's it's a company, you've got all the work done, everything ready to set up a company there. Uh, and suddenly, suddenly pandemic hits, what do you do? So then we, we recut things very quickly uh, to then instead think, okay, let's turn the company to a virtual company, so sort of a soft launch, get through the worst of the pandemic and then build it up properly towards the end of the year. And that's what we did. And ultimately the company uh, was a formally set up in August, uh, 2020 and operated virtually for about three or four months. And actually we ended up using that time very productively. We ended up doing all the hiring in that time, again, virtu all virtually, uh, bought all the equipment, um, set up things like IT and, and just a, a lot of stuff we managed to get done that actually meant that we weren't that delayed by the time we got started. And we, when we actually opened our doors in December, ready to December go. slash January, it's ready to go. Yeah, team cut, team started coming in. Fourth of January was was the first the first intake, and it sort of went from there. Uh, I mean, are there any practices uh, that you can take forward from from that? Are there any kind of learnings? I, I know you've mentioned the remote hiring. I think so. So just hire hire people if you've got a choice between if you're very you've got way too much you've always got way too much to do at the start 
the choice is do the work or hire someone to do the work always opt, opt to hire someone but there's a big lesson there which is even if it feels like you're you're drowning and stuff to do makes room for the hiring and hire properly don't just get the first person you find set up a proper process proper screening because uh, that way you end up with good people so that was one one lesson and the second one i think is kind of trusting trusting the people you're going to business with so you know we try to get up to me and my colleague ed uh from sincona who we, we set it up together on, on sincona side we were trying to get up to Edinburgh as often as we could but it was difficult and it took us a while to really be going there regularly and so a huge amount of the stuff happening on the ground was stuff happening being led by the scientific directors uh and you know again it, it suddenly gets a bit nervous when you're you things are happening and you're just getting reports back but you're not seeing it first you can't see it yeah. yeah and it's all kinds of things like you know there's some building was we're doing in the office for example or you know setting up the lab stuff like that um i think again you know we tr we had a team that we could trust because they're incentivized they're aligned they're passionate about doing the same thing we're doing uh and i think actually you know the risk was probably a lot lower than we thought it was um, and it all worked out very, very well. So I think there's a big thing there around trusting and empowering the people you're with. And if you feel you can't do that, then question whether you should be going to business with them in the first place. And how how have you seen the kind of the science change? Uh, are people kind of now everybody's doing mRNA research, or or is is that something that you've seen? Yeah. So certain. So the science is always there. I mean, a lot of the science is long, very long term. It's it's academic, spending decades on on certain areas, and that's always been there. And I think what shifts is sort of where the spotlight is. You think there's this landscape there, and then yeah, over long term funding, academic funding will shift that around. But actually, what's moving is the spotlight of the industry side of it, the investment, and that's the thing that has changed. And you do see that changing a lot in response to a pandemic, for example, and other shocks. And actually, you picked on a very good one there: RNA therapeutics. Yeah, they've always been the background of people's minds. They had a big moment in the limelight about 15 years ago or so. Then everyone realized they're quite hard to make it's quite hard to make them work. And now suddenly, thanks to the pandemic, we've had stunning validation um, of mRNA in the context of vaccines. So suddenly there's a lot more interest in them. There have been a lot of deals on that recently announced and companies popping up on it. Uh, and there are a few others as well. But that's I think the one that really came out of the pandemic, sort of looking very strong. I suppose what you what you're saying is that it's a testament to the power of capital to be able to direct what people do and what people work on and what kind of companies come out. Exactly. You need to have the background of technologies that are that are useful for this. So, you know, it wasn't a given that these companies would have been around at the time the pandemic hit. They were around, as are many other promising technologies that haven't yet sort of discovered their, you know, haven't had their lucky break in a sense. So this was around, and that's that's to speak to the longer term environments and kind of the risk the risk profile investors in the biotech field. But on top of that, you need people to allocate the capital on the spot and do that wisely and be willing to take the risks. And that that's the bit that really came through in the pandemic. And that wasn't just you know traditional investors; a lot of that was governments as well, willing to you know buy vaccines at risk and essentially fund the trials. Uh, uh, yeah, so you've kind of put a, a tailwind behind certain sectors so maybe um we've talked a little bit about rna therapeutics what what other areas saw a massive injection of cash so that that was a big one because it brought it to, to the forefront and the other one is everything around digital um and you know re remote monitoring ai enabled care all that stuff i mean that was already seeing growth i think before before the pandemic a lot of that was driven by generalist investors getting more and more into the sector and those areas are a bit more accessible they're less the risk is less scary than traditional therapeutics and i think that was accelerated as well 
Uh, and we, you know, you see that's not just in bikes. You see that in several areas where suddenly everyone wants to do things remotely, digital, decentralized, all that. And that's that's happened as well in biotech. And the whole sort of AI-led drug discovery in particular, but also trial monitoring, optimization, then, then symptoms monitoring and clinical care, all that has taken off as well. Resolution is a really fascinating story, and it clearly exemplifies many of the trends which Gonzalo went on to explain about the life sciences industry more generally. I wanted to dig further into the extraordinary changes that people working in the life sciences have seen over the past couple of years. Because while the pandemic was a disruptor for society as a whole, could it, in the grand scheme of things, be seen as a catalyst for innovation in the life sciences? We saw that could have been the case with diagnostics last week. But what about everyone else? I went back to Jason to find out. Were there, were there any companies or types of companies that were kind of favoured during the pandemic for operational reasons? I can I can see telemedicine, I can see digital health, and it's almost like they fed each other because it was A, necessary, and B, operationally convenient. Well, I think coming back to diagnostics, I know numerous SMEs that pivoted to developing their own diagnostic test for COVID because that's where the money was. And mm. so we probably ended up with a plethora, probably thousands of businesses offering rapid diagnostic testing of every kind of you know PCR or LAMP or other flavor you can imagine. I'm curious to see how that goes now that the pandemic is kind of, I shouldn't say it's a thing of the past by any means because there's several people out there who are still contracting the virus, but it's not as it was two years ago. So there will be opportunities that those companies could have been developing that they put to the side to focus on COVID, but that's where the money was at the moment. And because so many resources were thrown, as you said, to that heroic warlike effort, you know, you can't argue that it was a poor decision. It made sense at the time, but there will be a consequence. And do you think there is more funding in general for life sciences? Is life sciences more well-funded now than it was before the pandemic or definitely Stuart. i mean this is probably as much as some of your listeners may say i'm struggling with my fundraise and i sympathize with them i would say that there's more cash available now more capital available for life sciences than in any other point in human history because of the collective mindset following the pandemic people are suddenly very aware of their personal health and mortality and so you have the traditional life science investors who are raising record sums to invest at record sums in companies. We have American investors and Asian investors and European increasingly investing in the UK and you know in other territories that maybe they historically hadn't engaged in to the same extent, particularly because the world was flattened by COVID. It didn't matter if you were next door or <laughs> a few hours flight away, you can hop on a Zoom call and you can do some work. And I think what's really interesting is the tech investors who are increasingly saying, we want to deploy in life sciences. Now, that makes some life science traditional investors a bit nervous because tech investors tend to have higher pre-money valuations, et cetera, different way of investment. But it's the kind of the kind of um, jolt we need to the system to think about things differently. I like the way that tech is minded to be agile, to grow and scale, to find new ways to bring health to consumers without a, have to always having to go through traditional channels. So it's, it's for the betterment, but there's definitely a lot of capital available for life sciences. So you think it might change the way that that things are done in the industry? I think so. It's a well past time. We've seen <laughs> so many dogmatic ways of doing things yeah, yeah. were disrupted in the last couple of years. 
So now you can't say, oh, that could never possibly go, or it's always been done this way. Actually, here's the evidence. I, I know um, some some companies or some, some even some large pharma companies are adopting um, even remote uh, transfer to manufacture, uh, which which is an interesting um, which is an interesting way way of doing things. But actually, makes a lot of sense from from an efficiency point of view when you've got a kind of a large man, multinational company that you don't have to end up flying people around the world all the time. Yeah, yeah, it makes and a it, lot of sense. It's like flexible working. A hybrid model probably works best for the majority of people, but we've gone from one extreme to the next, from you must have bums on seats and everybody needs to be in the office to, oh, we're all forced to work from home, to now actually we can get a lot done. Face-to-face time is very important, but we can be flexible as well. And that, again, mm-hmm. opens up an entire industry of opportunities. I, I think about what's happening with our high streets. There are a lot of empty um, shop fronts. And increasingly, they're being repurposed to create co-working space. I think some of those could be repurposed to create, let's say, incubator lab space for some of the companies that I'm investing in. Lots of creative ways for us to think about using what we already have. An industry of opportunities with more money around than ever, whether it's in cell and gene or diagnostics, it's an exciting time to be in the life sciences. While the pandemic shifted the focus to certain sectors, many people across the industry are coming out of the pandemic with a renewed spirit and sense of promise. But that being said, none of those people who founded companies in early 2020 would want to do it that way again. So how should investors and companies be preparing for the next pandemic, the next great disruptor? And what other underfunded sectors should be getting more money today to prevent similar future events? Gonzalo had some interesting thoughts on this, particularly in relation to climate change. We talked about climate change, but maybe just kind of draw it, draw it back into to life sciences and healthcare. Is there something big enough at the moment that we should we should be throwing kind of supercharging our resources towards? Yeah, I mean, so th- there are two areas I'd say that are big areas um that that kind of but kind of have, have systemic problems i think or structural problems that means they don't get funded one is um antibiotic resistance uh-huh. and the other one is preventive healthcare basically they're, they're two areas where everyone knows and everyone agrees they're very important problems they are so they are solutions to drastically reducing mobility in, and mortality in the world and reducing healthcare costs and yet they don't get funded um and it's a, it's a problem with the market model so take antibiotics well-known problem, you know, uh, bugs get more and more resistant to the antibiotic arsenal we have, and that becomes a problem. You know, down the line, people may, may start dying from from common infections. And the reason it's so intractable is because, firstly, because running trials is difficult because it's a very messy setting, but also say you do develop an antibiotic that works, uh, that, that is kills everything, even the most resistant of bugs. No doctor's going to use that antibiotic unless they really, really have to. They're going to keep it stored on their shelf yeah, and yeah. use it as a last line, last resort thing to avoid resistance developing. And so the commercials basically are impossible to make it work. You need a huge amount of grant funding and government funding. Uh, and even then it might not work because it's such a, ma- a large scale thing. So that, that's a one big structural problem. And then similarly, preventive medicine, the whole idea of monitoring people uh, and you know, treating them, or as it were, encouraging healthy lifestyle, but actively mm. doing it or giving drugs that are preemptive. You know, many, many companies have tried to do this in one way or another. 
And again, time and time again, it doesn't it doesn't work because um, unless you can get unless you can package it as a consumer product, basically, and do it as like a fitness app or a steps counter, it doesn't work because you know no what you don't see the returns. You do all this work, the return is an avoided healthcare cost twenty years down the line. So the person the the, the company that invested the money in the first place won't see that return come through. The other thing that came out of it, I think, and it's, this is a broader topic, I think, not this is you see it's way beyond resolution. It's how how we think about resilience and building resilience in. Um, ah, yes, yeah, yeah. So that's a big thing, and it's incredible. It's going to be very, very important. When we think about climate change in the longer term as well. A lot of the way we we run companies, not just in biotech, you're not really prepared to absorb a major shock like COVID was, uh, and a lot of companies struggled through it and had major troubles with that. Um, and so, there's a question of how much do you build up front, kind of preempt, preemptively build resilience into what you're doing. Um, and it's a difficult question because it's not in human nature to do that. We, you know, unless it, we're backs against the wall, we don't like you know, incurring costs or spending time or money where we don't need to. No, exactly. So think, building up a massive reserve yeah. or something like that, yeah. Yeah, I think the pandemic has probably shifted thinking on that a little bit. I hope that that stays when we think about tackling climate change on a longer time frame. Um, but it's a difficult question. You're seeing it play out all over the place. I mean, the, the one I always go to, the example I always go to is the NHS, where you you see how stretched the NHS was and, and how, you know, it's a miracle, sort of, it, it all stayed afloat, but, you know, it comes at a heavy cost and all kinds of things have been problematic, you know, long waiting lists, you know, postponed operations and all that. So there's a real question there. Are we, as, as a British population, willing uh, to, to, to pay the cost, as it were, of building that resilience in? It doesn't come for free. But clearly, this has highlighted that actually we should, we should really think about it. No, exactly. So I've, I asked my friends about this and uh, sometimes think about climate change. It's such a long-term problem although it is creeping closer and closer how do you um how do you encourage private enterprise to to make the right decisions or is it always going to be government-led it's it's a very difficult question right and one one that's sort of i'd say far far beyond my own, my own experience <laughs> but I, I can sort of speculate i guess or give my own my own opinion on it, it the reason it's so difficult is because i think the solution goes against the principles of capitalism, essentially. I think, you know, the whole, a whole society, definitely in the West, is built around returns and, you know, you, you, you use money to do useful things, which is measured by making more money. And there are exceptions to that. You know, think of academia, for example, it's measured slightly differently. So it's not, not, not you know, the only rule, uh, or the NHS, for example, or, you know, other institutions. Um, but when you think about private enterprise, I think climate change doesn't have that direct link uh, to returns, at least not yet. And so that's where the problems lie. And I think there's a lot of work effort now to try and build that link, you know, things like carbon taxation mm -hmm. or, and, and that comes through government intervention. But the, the added challenge with climate change is that you need international cooperation on it. You all need to align on it because it's a common problem. So that's why it's, it's so difficult to fix because it's not just government intervention. It's governments have to agree on the intervention and not just Western governments, not just European governments, but, you know, China, US, Europe. So it's a very, very tough problem. Uh, and it's just, and COVID is, you know, in many ways analogous to COVID. And COVID, we were lucky that actually the whole thing unfolded in a very short time frame. So, you know, from the point where we all realized we're in real trouble, we, st we, we could react quickly enough and climate change won't give us a luxury. Those ideas of structural issues and increasing preventative models of care are as vital as they are underutilized. Funding things which may or may not happen in the future is unlikely to draw big investment. But some negative outcomes are inevitable, no matter how long in the future. And Jason agrees with Gonzalo that preventative medicine will be the way to avoid them. It's something he's passionate about 
with the new starting companies at Start Codon. What would you like to see kind of our collective mind put on next? Uh, is it um, mental health? Is, is it oncology? What, what, what would you like to see the collective mind on next? I would like to see a more focused effort on prevention and early detection of, of disease, much more so. And we have the tools available. The ingredients are there. We just need uh, probably a top-down government initiative to really push it forward and prioritize it. Because if we could think beyond five-year election windows, the NHS could probably save billions and be much more effective at what the NHS is required to do. It's a great service, but it's always constantly struggling. Imagine if it were health and wellness as a service. What if the government incentivized us to exercise and eat better and also had earlier and more uh, frequent screening um, through the NHS, et cetera. Things that kept us well so that the burden on the hospital and secondary care was a lot less and that primary care physicians were more empowered to help their communities as well. Those are things I would love to see. Imagine if the healthy population maintained a much higher standard of living and care and well-being that the system that treats those who are in acute care, which we're really great at in the UK, or in chronic care, have more resource to really focus on those in need. Because those of us who can take ownership and maybe are incentivized to take ownership of our own health and enabled, not just only incentivized, but enabled to do so, less burden on the hospital system and the healthcare system as a whole. No, absolutely. Are you seeing anything that kind of gives you hope in that space? Yeah, plenty of companies. Um, I think that if I think about my own portfolio, we have a company called Adora Health, which is focused on supporting women with perimenopausal symptoms and getting them not only really well-vetted advice, but help them build a community and secure the right therapeutic for them. With the idea of, over time, like many of these digital health plays, building up a database of insights with the right consent so that pharma and biotech partners can develop the next generation of treatments. So there are loads of opportunities that are cropping up, trying to help people manage their own care, help them understand the best treatment for themselves. It's not always going to be a drug. Sometimes it can be cognitive behavioral therapy, simply about mindset or exercising or maybe holistic approaches, which are complementary to the, um, let's say, regulated interventions we're kind of moving into another sort of uncertain period now where where we're getting high inflation and high interest rates does that does that change the investment landscape once again and and, and maybe the risk profile of, of investors and how does that trickle into life sciences investment yeah so there's an operational consequence and there's an investment consequence so if i think about the investment side first to your question we know there are uncertain times there's been a bit of a bubble in the stock market a lot of companies um, aren't worth as much as they were when they first listed and they don't have the cash in the bank and some might be delisting and some companies are holding off in their IPOs and that's having a knock-on effect. So that trickles down to the LPs and the positions they hold in the funds that do early stage investments. So there's a bit of a trickle. From our side, early stage, we still see a healthy appetite for investment because by the time our companies are ready for those exit, we're looking like at a five-year minimum mm -hmm. horizon on average. So they figure the market will correct itself by then. So invest now, early stage, to get returns yeah. in the future. The companies that are more mature, that are trying to get crossover funds to back them or are looking for like 100 million plus raises or trying to go for an IPO, they're, I would think, are in a more challenging situation than some of the early stage that we see. So 
What's interesting on that front as well is maybe exits won't be IPOs, maybe M&A might be a better way to go. A lot of the companies we see that are platforms might be acquired in, say, eight, nine years' time by the larger players looking to innovate as opposed to lining themselves up necessarily for an IPO. Not saying mm-hmm. that's the, the default outcome, but it's a very healthy exit for a lot of companies, and it might be the smart choice for them to make. So that's interesting. On the operational side, of course, um, quanta of capital is increasing, but the price of goods is increasing rapidly as well. Yeah, so yeah. whenever these companies are putting together the use of funds, what well, costs 80,000 pounds worth of work last year, it was 120,000 pounds worth of work this year. But maybe they're only raising the same amount because that's all that's available. That's a challenge. So I like situations like this, these pressure cookers, because it forces us to innovate. Not everybody has that mindset, but I think of it as a growth mindset attitude, as an opportunity, as opposed to just something that's a hindrance. I suppose it's, uh, yeah, necessity is the mother of invention, I think is the saying. Um, so sometimes when you're kind of forced into a corner, you have to be quite creative to get out of it. Yeah. Think of all the businesses that will pop up servicing companies that are struggling to um, accomplish their goals with all the inflation and the cost of goods um, through the roof. We know that there are some goods that are being manufactured locally because due to Brexit, things might be a bit more expensive to bring them into the UK, for example. Opportunities, opportunities, opportunities. It's certainly an interesting time to be in, isn't it? <laughs> so uh, I suppose kind of in, in conclusion, are you? Um, how do you see the prospects for the, for the life sciences uh, community uh, and, and investment kind of going forward? Well, I'm very optimistic, very optimistic. And I think the thing that we shouldn't do is become complacent. I think that there are probably loads of startups that arose over the last couple of years. We see the numbers of plenty of companies starting up. doesn't mean all of them should or will be ultimately successful, but it's exciting to see that we're moving in that direction and people have that entrepreneurial spirit. And in the life sciences, given how many investors are new to the life science space but are coming in and looking Mm. to partner with more experienced traditional biotech investors, that's really promising to me because they're bringing a new, fresh perspective as well as additional capital into the market. So now is an excellent time to set up a business, but do it in the right way with the right partners. And I think the life sciences industry is going to continue to move from strength to strength, particularly because healthcare is at the forefront of our minds. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. whatever the next big challenge is that faces us globally there will be a health component i guarantee that the next big healthcare challenge is always going to be hard to predict no matter the warnings about new pandemics continuing momentum and investment into prevention isn't an easy thing to convince people to do it's human nature something for our future selves to worry about but it shouldn't be The one thing that the pandemic has certainly taught the world is what can happen when resources are pooled and minds globally are set to one task. This attitude doesn't have to mean that other sectors miss out. The life sciences encompasses so many intersecting realms that collaboration is a fact of life. And when it's directed towards improving human health, amazing things can happen. We've talked about so many different subjects in this series of Invent. From the huge breakthroughs in genomics and cell and gene therapy to moving beyond animal testing and finding ways to alter your genes. And one thing which came up with every guest is how interdisciplinary these topics truly are. We should be investing in testing, monitoring, developing treatments and tools to gain greater understanding of disease biology. Because the more knowledge we have about the human condition, the more prepared we'll be 
to defend and improve it for all. That's all for today, and indeed for this whole series of Invent Life Sciences. Thanks so much to Jason, Gonzalo, and all of our other guests on this series. And thanks to you for tuning in each week. We hope you've learned a lot and enjoyed yourselves as much as we had in the making of it. We'll be back in the autumn with a second series of Invent Health, introducing a new host, new guests, and loads of fascinating new topics from our team at TTP and beyond. We'll see you then. Invent Life Sciences is a podcast from TTP. It was hosted by me, Stuart Lowe, biotechnology and bioinstrumentation consultant at TTP. It was produced by Harry Stott. The assistant producers were Ewan Cameron and Florian Ball. The executive producers were Abby Williams and Sam Zaccarino from TTP and Ollie Judge from Adrift Entertainment.